You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABU Technologies. This week on the University Series, we are speaking with Lipscomb University and Dr. Annette Little. Dr. Little taught special education classes in residential treatment centers, public schools, and alternative schools for eight years before moving into higher education. She then spent four years directing research projects in the areas of positive behavior interventions and supports, reading and writing strategies for students at risk for emotional and behavioral disorders, and prevention of behavior problems at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Little is also a board-certified behavior analyst and has worked in the field of applied behavior analysis since 2007. She has taught classes in general education, special education, and applied behavior analysis in higher education institutes since 2005. Dr. Little joined Lipscomb University in 2013. She is currently serving as the Director of the Studies in Applied Behavior Analysis programs at Lipscomb University. Without further ado, Lipscomb University. Today we are here speaking with Dr. Annette Little from Lipscomb University. So thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I am actually going to pass it right over to you to jump into a general overview of the program. Okay, great. Um, So Lipscomb's program was initiated about eight years ago. Um, and we started with just a certificate in ABA at the, the graduate level. And over the years, um, of course, I'm collecting feedback from students and adjuncts and supervisors on how we can improve the program. Um, and there was a lot of interest in uh, a master's of science in ABA. And so um, I created this Master of Science in ABA based on student surveys, uh, student feedback in class, uh, based on adjunct and supervisor feedback. And so it's it's a pretty um, unique program uh, at the master's level. Um, So what, what we did is that we created a couple of courses that um, allow students to go beyond that master's in a lot of different directions. Okay, so I had a lot of students who were interested in the business side of ABA. What does that look like? And how do we get into, you know, owning our own companies and um, or really understanding the business side, even if we don't own our own company, but really um, like being a part of the growth of a company. Um, And I'm like, okay, cool. We'll, We'll add a business class to our master of science in ABA. Um, so we've, we've added that business class and uh, that's been very popular with students. And I've had a lot of students graduate and open their own companies, um, which is fun to watch and see uh, the variety and types of companies that come out of the students um, in our program. We have a couple that are really focused on that nonprofit piece of it. Um, you know, some that are really focused on um, the social media aspect and how can we bring that in? Um, so it's been fun to kind of follow students after they graduate and, and follow their companies. And of course, they always come back to me and say, I have a problem. You know, I have a wait list. What do I do? And I'm like, well, you hire more. Like that's that's kind of um, what happens in this field. Everybody grows to the point of just having to continually hire. Um, and then we have we added a, an additional research class. You know, of course, our core has the research class. But students wanted an additional research class that really focused on 
teaching them how to disseminate this knowledge. So in a lot of programs, we, we have research classes and we teach students uh, the ins and outs of research, how to conduct this you know, really cool research project. And then we give them a grade and say, awesome, you passed, you're moving on. And, and these students are like, well, we probably need to disseminate this because we worked really hard on it. I'm like, you're right. We need to teach you how to um, apply and get accepted at conferences. We need to teach you how to submit to different journals and really you know, publish your work for a broader audience. Um, and so we created a research class focused on dissemination of the research that they conduct earlier on in their program. And again, that was based on students' needs and what students wanted. Um, and I said, you know, this should set you up on that path uh, for a doctorate if that's what you want to do. If you don't want to you know, open your own company, here's another path that you can take um, in this field. Um, and then I had a lot of students who wanted to, to teach in, in the school setting. Um, and if not, continue being a teacher or go into the field of teaching, but be a behavior analyst in that particular setting. Um, and they wanted to work more collaboratively with speech language pathologists because it's so critical to have that commonality in language because we're all on the same page when we're working towards changing behaviors of students in that educational setting. But oftentimes we are using the same vocabulary words, but in different ways and different contexts. And, and it causes some conflict sometimes that's completely unnecessary and uh, completely preventable. So we created this communication language and social skills class and all of the classes at Lipscomb's program, they're taught by BCBAs except for this one class. This one class is taught by an SLP because that's, that's his field, right? Um, but it's really cool because the, the person I chose to teach this class um, was a, a behavior specialist um, before he became an SLP. And I'm like, oh, so you understand verbal behavior and you've read Skinner's verbal behavior? And he's like, uh, absolutely. I said, I need you to come teach this class for me because uh, he can bring both worlds together um, in a way that's just really cool for students. And so he teaches the language uh, from the SLP perspective in a way that students in the ABA world understand it so that when they go out into the world, they can better communicate with the team of people working with a particular individual. Um, so those are kind of the classes that we built around that masters of science um, in ABA. And of course, we the, the last class that's in addition to our core classes that everybody has to offer as a verified core sequence um, is an autism communication um, uh, class. So this autism uh, class is taught um, by someone um, who's a, a lead specialist in the field and her main focus is on autism. And, and, I, and I offer this class not because that's the only population we work with. Everybody knows we work with you know anybody, um, but it is our biggest funding source, especially in our area. And because that's our biggest funding source, I wanted um, students to have a class that they truly understood what it means for an individual to have this label. I'm not a big fan of labels and that's all it is, is a label. Um, but of course we know that in order to receive certain funds, 
um, that that label is necessary. So we wanted students to fully understand that. So we, we offer a course specific to autism spectrum disorders. Um, so those are the main courses that make up Lipscomb's program other than um, our uh, core verified course sequences, um, which I guess are pretty similar to everybody else's because they, they kind of have to be. Well, and yeah, you know, everybody always has those main core courses that are very similar just because those are the requirements, like you said, but then I heard in there a lot of different, very unique courses that are very interesting that might not necessarily be offered at a lot of other places. And the fact that you know, this is a, you know, this is a good thing that a lot of people do, but I think for you specifically, you're so close to the students and their needs and their wants that to actually take everything that they've said that they wanted or needed is something really cool to hear as well. Yeah. I'm in a unique position as well. Um, because I've been a faculty member of one since the beginning of the program up until this past January, we finally hired our second full-time faculty member. Um, and I can't do this alone. Um, and so, you know, my team became the students, it became the adjuncts, it became my supervisors, um, and we're better as a team. And I, you know, it's important to, to grow a program. The, the program is not for me. It's for the students, so it only makes sense to grow it in a way that's beneficial for them. And who better to say what's beneficial for them than the students themselves? Um, so I love that I have that student connection. Um, I find that because we're a small program, we do get to know our students on a personal level, and and they stay connected once they graduate and once they leave they're they're contacting me saying hey guess what i'm doing right now and i'm like oh i want to hear all about it let's go meet for coffee or you know um you know i live on a farm come out to my farm let's let's you know talk um and so i i love that we're small enough that i can continue to have that connection uh, with students and and i have a great group of adjuncts that also have that connection with students um, even though they're just adjuncts um, they are so invested into this program and into the students um, that I'm just very, very fortunate to, to be at Lipscomb. Well, and that's, I, I really love hearing that. And I'm excited to jump more into some of the specifics. And I know you just mentioned the faculty and some adjuncts and you. And so what does that faculty setup look like now? Who, you know, who's teaching in this? And uh, what can the students expect from them? Yeah, so I have been able to pretty much hand select uh, a pretty unique, fabulous group of adjuncts. Uh, I gave you the example of the, the SLP who's teaching the communication class, um, the, the person who's teaching the ethics class um, has a JD. And so he's, um, you know, he has a doctorate in law but he's also a BCBA. And I'm like, ooh, so you could teach ethics and bring in like the laws related to our field, right? And he's like, yeah, I could do that. And I'm like, and you could teach for us as an adjunct, couldn't you? And he said, yeah, I'll do that. So what surprises me so much about these adjuncts um, is that they're saying yes. 
to coming in and teaching a class. And this is not their full-time gig, but they're still willing to contribute. And adjuncts don't make a whole lot of money. So, so that it's a service that they're offering up and they're willing to do that, um, you know, for these students. And, and I love that. Um, and so we have um, other um, adjuncts from various fields. I try to select them based on their particular areas of expertise, which you often don't get if you hire a full-time faculty member. Um, you get a person in a particular area of expertise, but then they have to teach lots of different classes and lots of different things. But if it's an adjunct, I'm like, okay, I want you for this one. I want you for this one, you for this one. And I can spread it out. Uh, and it works so much better. So when I have students that are interested in business, I'm like, well, you need someone with a background in business to teach a business class. Let's bring it in. Um, and so I also make sure that we have that BCBA connection um, and that all the instructors other than the uh, communication class, they are BCBAs who are teaching these classes. Um, and so I have um, uh, a person who is really focused on that school setting. It was a BCBA in a school setting, teaching the program design class that really looks at those school-wide system approaches. Um, and so I brought her in to teach that. Um, so yeah, I have a, a variety of adjuncts um, who fit nicely in with the classes they're teaching. And they've been with me for years. Um, which is really, really helpful. The adjuncts are also great at sitting down and looking at our program data with me. Um, and so I, I share that at our faculty meetings, which sounds silly that I have faculty meetings and I'm a faculty of one, but I'm like, hey, you guys come as adjuncts to this faculty meeting. I'm gonna hold a faculty meeting. And we look at the program data and I, and I give um, tests throughout the program on all the standards that are being offered, you know, the TASLIS 4 and now TASLIS 5. And so I've created these assessments that test all these different standards. And, and I bring it to the adjuncts. I'm like, man, students are doing great in this area and this area, but look at how they performed on this standard. Who teaches that standard, you know? So that that one adjunct is like, eh, I think that's in my class. And I'm like, you know what? You taught it in your class and students retained it in your class for the period of your class. And that's awesome. Long-term retention is just not there. Let's talk about how we can teach it differently to promote that long-term retention. Um, and so they have been instrumental in coming in looking at the data, changing their courses and helping to really evolve this program. And, and I love it because when I got my, I have my little graphs, right? Where I bring my graph, like here's the progress of students over time. Um, all these little pretests that I'm giving students, these little checkpoints, the scores are going up, which means the adjuncts are actually listening to me and changing the method in which they are teaching certain standards to promote long-term retention. Um, and I love that I see these, these scores going up because that means I can just add new information to my last class. I'm kind of the bookend. So I teach the first class, uh, the foundations of ABA to get students started and engaged. And, uh, and then I teach that last class, the advanced ABA. Um, in that advanced ABA, you know, I have the set of standards that I teach, but I also teach um, all the standards. Okay, so I, I look at those, those pre-tests. And I look at kind of the holes in students' understanding of ABA concepts, and I, I reteach all of those concepts in the class. 
And if they've performed very well on these pretests because the adjuncts have done a fabulous job teaching these concepts, then I get to add all of this new stuff into my class, which is super, super fun. Um, it's a lot of work because it's not one of those classes that you prep and you're good for the next five years, right? I have to re-prep it and recreate it every single time I teach it based on student knowledge of that group that comes to me. Um, but that keeps me fresh in the field and, uh, and not quite so bored with teaching the same thing over and over again. Uh, so it's it's fun and it, you know it's a it's a good thing for me to be able to to dive into new knowledge all the time as well and then I can share that with the students. So that's kind of the makeup of um, even those core courses that we have here at Lipscomb. Well, and I really like hearing that because from somebody who has been in a couple different adjunct positions, that I've never actually you know been that involved with with, you know, with the, with the decisions and the feedback and the teaching strategies that you're listing. And so I think that's an absolutely amazing way to not even show your students that you're bringing in these people who are, who are doing this every single day, but also you're showing your adjuncts that you really do actually care about them, about you know, how they're teaching, what they're teaching, making sure that your student outcomes are what you want them to be and what they need to be as well. And I think with your, as you say, your bookends and with the advanced course, I think that that's really great to hear that it's not just this canned course that you go off the same syllabus every single year. I think you're doing exactly what we like to do as behavior analysts and you're really individualizing it. And I mean, yes, it's to that course, you know, a group of students, but I think that's ideal because like you said, depending on what they need, it might need to be some supplemental material or you might get to bring in all of this cool new stuff as well. And so I think that that's phenomenal to hear. And I mean, within those courses and with you, I know that, you know, with adjuncts, the research probably is set up a little bit different, but you know, what are some of those opportunities for either research or capstone or even, you know, projects within the courses as well? Yeah. Um, so it is a little different with, with adjuncts, but I do love to collaborate on research with adjuncts and, and with students. Um, and so I let uh, the adjuncts and the students kind of lead the way. Um, and, you know, when there are especially local conferences that come up and the adjunct have an adjunct or two that are like, hey, let's do a, a presentation on this topic. I'm like, oh, right. Let's set this up. And what would it look like? And um, and then we kind of jump into uh, co-presenting at conferences and um, I'm involved to an extent in student research um, as students reach out to me and, and want me to be involved, but I don't teach either of the research classes. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely want to hear about the research that students are doing and as their advisor, we talk about it. Um, uh, so with the student research, they're all, of course, the single subject design research. Um, and it's more of a, um, 
I want to say an umbrella approach to the research that we have with our students. So in their research class, they have to do what I call FBIs, right? The function-based interventions. And so they have to go through this particular process for their research where they select one to three participants um, and they have to do their, their detailed, you know, the literature review, of course, is a big piece of it. Um, but they select clients from their particular work setting. They select four participants in the study. Um, and then they have to do this entire FBA um, on the, the target problem behavior. And then their literature review, of course, will inform the intervention that they implement. And then they have to select some kind of single subject design in order to evaluate the effects of this intervention on the behavior. Um, and they do all of this in one semester. I say one semester. We can give in-progress grades for students who need a little bit longer, but the idea is that they get it completed in, in one semester, uh, which is pretty impressive. And then, of course, we have that second research class that will help them uh, publish or at a minimum present uh, at a conference somewhere. And so I try to be involved as much as possible in student research. Um, but I'm also involved in um, adjunct uh, research as they want it. And I've had supervisors contact me out in the field saying, hey, I have an idea. I'm like, ooh, I love ideas. Let's talk. Uh, and we talk through ideas. And I've um, collaborated on some projects with some supervisors as well, because I think it's so important when people get out in the field, and they leave the university setting. Oftentimes that research kind of disappears. Now, everything we do is research. But as far as like, actual research that you want to then disseminate doesn't fit in with practice at all times. And so if I have a supervisor out there who's like, I really miss the research from the university setting, I'm like, you don't have to miss it. You can continue on. And, and yeah, I mean, you, you're here uh, as a supervisor for Lipscomb. I hired you as an adjunct because we hire all of our supervisors as adjuncts. So we can go through Lipscomb's IRB. Let's do this together. And, and I kind of um, work with the supervisors on conducting research um, at their clinics or wherever they happen to be working. Um, if they're interested in that, they don't, you know, it's not a requirement, of course, but I have a lot that just miss that piece of it um, and have lost that connection with the university. And I think um, universities can do a little bit better job reaching back out into the field, into that practice piece um, and continuing research uh, in those areas. Well, and I really like hearing that too, because that goes back to the comment I made before about the individualization. And so it sounds like if a student would come to you or, you know, to another faculty or, you know, an adjunct that they would say, Hey, I would really like to get X, Y, or Z experience. How can we go about doing that? Right. And whether that be with an adjunct with you with their with their site that they're at it sounds like there's a lot of different ways that they could go about getting involved in this but it is there if the students want to but again one thing too that i like to mention is that you know not everybody's doing research out and that you know that might not be their main focus when they get out there are people who do just want to go out there and be clinicians and that's that's completely fine as well. So, um, but I really like 
hearing though, that there are those options if the students do want them. Right. Yep. And so that also kind of brings up some more of the student experience that, um, you know, you've been talking a lot about it and I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about it as well. But I mean, what can the students expect, you know, with these courses, with the course load? And, you know, when, if a new student was coming in, you know, what, how would you explain what to expect with all of these classes to you or to them? Yeah. yeah. So um, the classes are all evening classes. They are hybrids. That does not mean we don't meet with students face-to-face. We definitely meet with students face-to-face really the majority of the time. So we we are meeting in eight-week blocks for each class. And those blocks, we meet once a week for four hours, for a four-hour class um, in their evening classes. And then they have online portions in between those face-to-face meetings. Um, during the pandemic, of course, face-to-face meetings ended up on Zoom, um, which really intimidated me a lot. And I was like, no, my dean has been begging me to move the program online uh, for a long time. And I've been stubborn. I've thrown temper tantrums. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, you know, I love my connection with students and I want to see them in the classroom. I want to see them face-to-face. And the pandemic hit. My dean called. She's like, guess what you're doing? I'm like, ah, okay, you got me. Um, but I have found out that this synchronous Zoom class really wasn't different. I could see all of my students because our class sizes are small. So that helped. I could see all of my students on one screen um, and it, it didn't feel much different at all than being in the classroom. Um, so that part kind of worked out for me. Um, but I'm excited uh, in the fall of getting to see students in a classroom again, but we are going to continue offering like a Zoom component for students who want to come to Lipscomb, um, who live a little bit further out. Um, They can do that. Um, And so with these classes being in the evenings that allow students to work during the day. Um, And I expect all of them to have a full-time job. It's like, you're not going to come to Lipscomb and just do classes because I need you to learn this content and apply it immediately in the field. Plus you have 2000 supervision hours you got to get in. You're not going to do that after you finish classes. You need to start when you start classes. Um, But I also don't mandate that students work for a particular place. So when students come to me and they're interviewing and and they want to get into this program, we talk about the job they currently have, and we look to see if that fits within the requirements um, for that practice piece. And if it does, then they can keep that job. And then I will send a supervisor, a Lipscomb supervisor to their work to supervise them. Or if it's a clinic loaded with BCBAs, um, I hire one of those in-house BCBAs as a Lipscomb adjunct to provide that supervision. We now have so many different clinics in the Middle Tennessee area that we collaborate with that I pretty much have an in-house BCBA at each one of those. Uh, but there are also times that, you know, I have students come in and they're teachers and they're like, man, I want to stay in my classroom. I said, tell me about your classroom. And they're like, well, I got this kid who climbs walls. I've got this other kid who strips naked and runs down the hallway. And I've got I'm like, okay, I think you're good. I think we can make this work. 
um, for your placement site. And I'm going to send the BCBA to you to help you with all of this. Um, and so students are like, what? I get like a, a free BCBA in my classroom to help me? Mm-hmm, you do. Um, and so they're pretty excited about that piece where they don't, they don't have to quit their job. Uh, they can continue on in their current job. And I have other students that are like, you know what? I've been teaching for 15 years. Um, I want to do the first year of the program in the school setting. And then I want to see what a clinic setting looks like. And I'm like, not a problem. Like I have all these clinics. Um, where you can like interview and find which works best for you. And the cool thing about finding a job uh, in this field is that the interview goes both ways. So the, the clinic's definitely interviewing you as a student, but you're interviewing the clinics because everybody's hiring and everybody wants to hire you. So you find your best fit. Um, so again, I let students kind of guide that field experience um, I've had students that are like, I'm interested in adult population. I'm like, great. I have some partnerships with some um, places that work with the adult population. I've had correctional officers come in that work in prisons and say, hey, you know what? I've got some behaviors I'm dealing with. I said, I bet you do. And they're like, could I use this as a placement site? And I said, absolutely, you can. Um, and so, you know, I'm very open to working with students and their placements. Um, I had one student come in and said, I'm a real estate agent. I said, mm, I don't think that's going to work. And they're like, well, I deal with behaviors. I said, well, not on a regular enough basis that this is going to work. Let's let's look at other options for you. So I occasionally have those come in that really need to look at a, a different job um, option. But the majority of the time, students can just use their current jobs um, as their field placements. Um, and then we just assign uh, a supervisor or we hire an in-house supervisor. Well, and that is amazing to hear because there's a lot of times, and I think the biggest location that I hear issues with are schools because some, and, and you know, each program has its own limitations. And so the fact that again, you go out of your way to make sure that this is something that can happen is phenomenal because there's so many schools and teachers that if they don't already have a BCBA in the school setting, it might not be able to work for them, unfortunately. And so to hear that, you know, you have these resources to get a BCBA out there to supervise them and to assist them is phenomenal. And I mean, you answered my next question as well, or what do some of the practicum sites look like? So that was great. Um, and again, it's really, I'm seeing that same theme that I've already talked about with if a student wants it, they can probably get it. Because yeah, especially with like their experiences as well. And I mean, we're going to talk about location in a little bit, but um, I really like hearing about all of this, all of the teachers that are coming in, because that is probably one of the hardest spots, depending on, you know, where you're at in the country, but the hardest spots to get a, an actual BCBA supervisor in there. And so, yeah, I mean, Congrats to you on being able to start these partnerships and, you know, with the clinics, with working with the school districts, with just being able to really tailor, have your students 
tailor their experiences. And that speaks, like you said, you have the dissemination course, but that really even speaks more to the dissemination effort because that's huge is making these bridge connections to these other fields, speech, to law, to schools, to all, you know, to business in general. So that's absolutely amazing to hear. Fabulous, fabulous BCBAs in this area um, who are very willing to jump in and, and help out. So that's, that's awesome. It's, I've been very fortunate. And I know you've mentioned it with talking about Middle Tennessee. So why don't we jump right into the location? And I know that you mentioned about the hybrid, how that, you know, will that can continue and things like that. But yeah, where, um, where are you located? We're in Nashville. What better place to be other than Nashville? Um, and I, I am biased. I'm a Nashville native, born, raised in Nashville. So of course I love Nashville. Um, so yeah, um, we, we're located in Nashville, um, just down the road from Belmont University, down the road from Vanderbilt University. So we're, we're centrally located. But our students come from all over Middle Tennessee, all the surrounding counties. Um, I had one student um, who was driving two hours one way into campus every day. And I said, okay, I need to find a supervisor for you (laughs) two hours away. Um, And we were able to do that. We were able to find a a supervisor um, for that one student. Um, so, you know, Nashville is just, you know, it's a, it's a small, big city, right? So it's, it's definitely growing very, very quickly, but it still has that small town feel to it. Um, and so I love that part of it, um, as a BCBA community, it's still relatively small, And so I tell students all the time, like if you're talking to your supervisor in your work setting and and you run into another BCBA, they probably know each other. Like we all know each other in this area uh, and we're all pretty collaborative. Um, So it's just it's a great place to be. I I just love this area. And I'm excited to be back down in Nashville in a couple weeks, actually, for the WEBA conference. I, it's been a few, it's been a few years since I've been to Nashville. So I'm very excited to get back down there and explore it a little bit more as well. Um, and so let's see, we have covered, uh, the general overview, the faculty, student experience, practicum opportunities, research opportunities, location, How about the admissions and if there is an interview process? Yes. So (laughs) your admissions is pretty typical when you have your application and you have your letters of recommendation and you have your personal statement. um, And then, you, you know, you have your standardized test scores. We accept the GRE or the MAT, either one of those. Um, And then you have an interview with me. So I'm right now the only one who's interviewing students as they come through. Um, And, you know, it's it's really just a conversation 
So I've, I've read their files, which is great. Um, and the interview is just an opportunity for me to get to know this individual um, and to see if, if Lipscomb is the right fit for them. Um, and through the interview process, I talk about the program and I listen to what um, this particular person's interest happens to be. Um, and then we kind of go from there. Um, I make recommendations uh, for acceptance into the program, but the dean makes the, the final decision. So I just send my recommendation up to the dean. Um, and so it's a pretty simple process. It happens pretty quickly. Um, nothing, nothing painful about it at all. And then when are those applications typically due as well? So they're rolling applications. So we accept them um, throughout the, the year. Um, I have two start dates. We have a fall start and then we have a spring start. Um, and so students can apply really at any time. If, if they apply a week before classes start in the fall, we're looking at a spring start. Um, but I interview year round. Um, so there, there's no, we may have a, a deadline on our website, but um, you can really go ahead and apply at any time. It may just roll you into that next uh, semester. Awesome. Well, we've covered a lot about the program. Is there anything else that you want to make sure to tell any of the listeners? You know, I think um, the biggest opportunity that you have if you're interested in coming through Lipscomb's program would be that opportunity to connect with your instructors and connect with your supervisors and really build those relationships that last beyond the program. So we're not one of those universities that are so large that it's hard to keep up with all the students um, who graduate. Um, we can keep up with our students because we are relatively small and, uh, and I hope we stay small. Um, so that's the biggest benefit of coming to Lipscomb. Um, you know, the relationships that you're going to create and build, uh, not only with adjuncts and supervisors, but with the other students who come through the program. Um, you know, that's, we, we become a family and, and we remain a family afterwards. And it sounds like that is very important to being in the area that most of the students are in is that you are so closely connected mm -hmm. and yeah. And so thank you. I mean, I've learned a lot and, mm -hmm. you know, I'll admit that this is the main reason why I wanted to do this series on the podcast was to hear about some of these schools that, you know, I've never heard of before, but are doing some really cool things. And just the differentiation between your students and their experiences and the networking and the relationship building is, is really, really great to hear. And you can very easily hear just the passion you have for your students and the program when you talk about it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for doing this. I love the work that you are doing and giving us the opportunity to get our voices out there. So thanks so much for your hard work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Opera Innovations. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.